Well, this morning, our text that I've alluded to several times is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And uh, it's very easy in these sermons, particularly when addressing elders, to uh, be the one preaching and it be this sort of, uh, I've got this figured out and I'm just telling the rest of pastors and elders and Christians how they should live. That's not the case at all. Uh, in uh, preparing and working on this sermon this week, uh, all it did was just highlight my own personal failures, highlight my need of Jesus, and highlight my need of repentance. And I will say as uh, we turn to this text, please know that uh, I've been in church plants and church revitalizations. I've been in ministry since 2012 at a full-time level, and East is a very special place. Uh, those of you who know a little bit about my story know that uh, I wouldn't be in ministry today if it wasn't because of the special leadership uh, with our elders and deacons that we have at East. Uh, I love these men tremendously. They're, they are, them and Jesus are the reason why I'm here today. Um, my wife, my family, we're better because of these men. So uh, I love them, but I am going to, to preach the text. I'm gonna let it do its job. I'm going to let it fall where it falls. Uh, if I say things that might be frustrating or concerning, uh, please come see me. Uh, I'm just the messenger, and my goal is to maximize Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do his work. So uh, this isn't uh, somebody in an ivory tower saying how exemplary I am at these things, uh, just the opposite. I need a lot of help and need y'all's grace. So... Let's turn to God's word, 1 Timothy 3. It'll be on your screen. It's in your app. Uh, in your app, if those of you who are new who don't know, uh, we have a sermon notes section where it has the text. You can take notes digitally in there. You can uh, see uh, outline for the sermon, discussion questions. You can even go in there and type your notes and email them to yourself. So um, just a little tidbit of information. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil." So as we think about this text, I want to do uh, a game, if I can do that. Presbyterians are typically called chosen frozen, so hopefully y'all will interact with me uh, and not shame me for this exercise. All right, I'm gonna start a sentence, and I'm gonna see if y'all can finish the end of this sentence. All right, finders, keepers, losers. Yes, we all know that saying. Great. Well, this was the name of a business created by Laura Baker in New Hampshire, have you ever been to those antique stores where they tread the fine line between like junk yard sale trash and like really nice antique pieces? Have y'all been there? You walk in like, am I gonna get tetanus here? Uh, should I, should my shots be up to date? Well, this is kind of what her store looked like, finders keepers. So uh, 
she had this porch set out and she just had things haphazardly set outside. And this man, seeing the name of the sign, drove his truck up, backed it up to the front of the porch and loaded a grill into his truck and drove off. Of all things to do, she checked the security cameras trying to figure out where in the world did my grill go? And she noticed this guy hops out of a truck, just very nonchalantly, just going about his business, loads his truck up, he's lifting with his back. I mean, he's doing it, he's not in a hurry. He's doing his own thing. Well, they couldn't get a good view of the guy's face and they've got this thief on the loose. Uh, they send out a, a, a letter to the police, they're on the lookout. So she's staying uh, close watch on the cameras, trying to figure out who this person is. A few days later, the same truck pulls up, backs up to the exact same parking spot and loads a TV into his truck. Then he loads up a DVD player and he's going back for more and then he's finally confronted. The police show up, it's kind of a scene. And they're like, what are you thinking? Like, why do you keep stealing, stealing things? He's like, well, the sign said, finders keepers. I just assumed your business model was if people needed something, they just come and get it. She's like, where in the world do you think a business exists just to not make profit? Like, what in the, what, what in the world are you thinking? The guy was like, well, I'm genuinely confused that your store looks like it has junk and I'm just helping myself, finders keepers. The logic makes perfect sense. I mean, if I find it, it's mine. The ethics of it might be a little odd, but the point remains. He returned all the stuff anyway. He was like, you should probably change your business name. I would agree with him, but the point remains. If you put a sign or a label on something, you expect that business, that person, that thing to act a certain way, right? If you're going in for brain surgery, you want your brain surgeon to know what to do with the scalpel. He's not gonna be like, hey, where's the brain at? You want them to know what to do with that thing. So it is with Christians, and you call yourself a Christian, you assume that Christians are going to act a certain way. Even more so for elders, even more so for pastors. I'll often be at the gym and I'll meet people and they're using foul language. And they'll be like, man, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. Like, man, I'm sorry for cursing. I'm like, hey, man, like... I get why you're saying that sentiment, but be you. People just expect pastors elders, overseers to act a certain way. And so this is what Paul is doing with the church in Ephesus. In this letter to Timothy, he's, he's first talked about having correct theology, then correct worship. Now he's talking about what good godly leadership should look like in a church. And this begs the question, it begs the question, does this text apply to you as a Christian, as a non-believer, as someone who's investigating Christianity, does this text apply to you 100%? It absolutely does. If you're a member of this church, if you're looking for a church, if you're a member of another church, this text applies for you because the leadership sets the tone for the DNA of the church. If you have elders who are present and loving and kind and gracious, that sets the DNA for the church. If you're a non-Christian looking to find out more about Christianity, when you visit places like this, you can quickly tell men who are drinking from the cup of God's grace versus men who aren't. You will feel loved. How you experience Jesus in your worldview 
depends a lot on 52 weeks a year, having your elders and pastors and teachers teaching you God's word. So this is very important for us today. So for little shepherds, not necessarily little in height, uh, Keith is 6'6", so it definitely doesn't apply to him. Uh, Little shepherds, meaning those who serve under the big shepherd, Jesus. That's the title of the sermon, Little Shepherds Shepherding Well. For little shepherds to lead well, two things must be very present. Two things must be very present. A high calling accompanied by high character. A high company, high calling accompanied by high character. And we see high calling right off the bat in verse one. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul, in laying the foundation for what he's instructing, says healthy, godly leaders are vital to a healthy, godly church. Now, for clarity, I know that plenty of people here use different versions of the New Testament. Some of your Bibles translate the word overseer in different ways. Some say bishop, elder, pastor, shepherd. All of these translations of this word are completely fine. They're very acceptable. So if you see different variations of this one Greek word, that's okay. The point is this Greek word was highlighting work, not a title. So when people are translating the Greek into English, they're trying to convey the best word that represents the work of a pastor. And that's what Paul has in focus here, the work, not the title. He says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, that they desire a noble task. And this is the first distinguishing characteristic for someone to be a leader in the church. Do they desire the work or do they desire the title? Those are two very different roads. And depending on where your leaders are, it has very different outcomes. You must recognize church because y'all vote for your elders. You, you, you submit these men's names to be leaders of this church. They get trained and then you vote for them. So it's very important that you recognize this primary characteristic in those who you call to lead. If someone wants a title, if someone does this job to be called pastor, to be called elder, to be called bishop, to be called reverend, to be called whatever. Don't call me reverend, by the way. People do that jokingly. They call me reverend. I'm not very reverendy. Um, but if someone chooses, I want to say this in the kindest way. If somebody chooses uh, this work for the, ti- for the title, I'm gonna encourage you to run for the hills. You can, you can quote me on that. If someone chooses to be an elder or a title because of the power it brings, because of um, the prestige that this title can have when people look up to you and they show up to listen to you talk in your home, community group, whatever. If they're here for the title, run for the hills. Why? because it's the polar opposite of what Jesus calls leaders to do. Look at Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 9, 35. Jesus is with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. 
Servant is just a really nice phrase for slave. Jesus is saying your leaders must be slaves to him and to the people they're called to. Matthew 23, 11 says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus even went on to say of his own ministry, he's the big shepherd, right? Matthew 28, 20, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life, not just his death, but his life, his perfect obedience is credited to his church. So his life and death was all served for the sake of God's glory and for his people. He's doing this to give his life as a ransom for many. So you see, the great shepherd and overseer of all of our souls came and was born amongst animals and died in between criminals, and he knew no sin. And he did this to set forth what your elders and your pastors should look like. It should be a life of selfless giving service, one that seeks to love God's people and to care with them, to be with them amongst the highs and the lows. It shouldn't be a a person who's called because they want the title to inflate their own personal ego. Very practically, you would wonder, well, why in the world would anybody want this work? Who in the world would want to sign up to live a life derivative of what Jesus did in his life and death? Why in the world would anybody want that? A lot of times, men have this calling put on their lives where it's kind of like uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu where Jesus just gets men in a headlock with this Holy Spirit and they can't get out. No matter what they do, God is going to make them serve in this role. That's men you want to be in here. They feel this calling. It's not something, yeah, I'm ready to be a pastor. No, God works in their lives and is internally calling them. And that internal call is confirmed externally by the people he's around. Think about this. You want men who are called to the work because who do you want holding your hand when life gets difficult? Life is hard. Who do you want in your life when your marriage is struggling, when things at work are going terrible, when life is kicking you in the teeth so much so that you can physically feel the shadow of death creeping over your shoulder. Who do you want beside you during those times? If a person wants to be a pastor or elder for the title, your pain is that person's inconvenience. If a person is in this role because they want the title, they want the prestige, they want people to look up to them, then when life goes bad for you, you're going to be met with voicemails. You're going to try to get a hold of them and you'll get on the phone and at best, you might get a good Christian cliche. Life's hard, ah, you know what, I'm in between, means uh, God's got you, God's gonna protect you, God's here for you, just pray, just all right, talk to you later, whoa, whoa, whoa. hang up. It's very likely that men who want this position for the title, you might not even know how to get a hold of them. You might not know their phone numbers, who they are, because they're probably never at church. 
They're never at community groups. They're never, uh, they're never doing anything amongst the body of the church. You just have no clue who that person is. And if they left, you'd be like, I, I don't know who that is. I've been there. I've been in these churches. And a lot of times these guys just show up when you're in trouble. That's not the kind of leader that God is to us through Jesus. And that's not who he calls into these positions. Church, you want men who are present in the life of this church. You want men who know how to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. You need elders that not just look and talk like they've experienced Jesus, but they need to smell like Jesus. When you get around them, you need to leave there like, man, my life is better because Jesus is flowing through that person. That elder, that leader is drinking from the cup of God's grace so much so that it's overflowing into him him. And I can drink from that well because of that person. That elder's not drinking from the cup and tainting that, that well so much that it, it needs to be run through a Brita filter, right? You need elders who are drinking from God's grace, who can dr give you something to drink when you're parched. Well, where in the world do we find these men? Where in the world are they? What do I do to figure out who that is? And this brings us to our final point. Little shepherds lead well because their high calling is accompanied by high character. And we're going to see this all through verses two through seven. We can't spend a lot of time on each one of these qualifiers. And you'll notice that uh, these phrases that you see throughout here, this is not like a full-blown job description. This is like Paul writing down sticky notes, just placing it everywhere. It's kind of like a word picture. This is the bare minimum for what you should expect out of your elders and your leaders, but it also applies to every Christian in one sense or another. But at bare minimum, your elders should be exemplifying this and, and trying to attain this, all right? So we're gonna take a 30,000 foot view. We're not gonna spend a ton of time in each of these. However, to make sense of all this, I've put them into five categories and I've created an acronym so everybody can remember it. All right, here we go. CAM, -haram. it's the acronym, all right? But uh, you can break it up and say this, CAM, so character, ability, maturity, and then HER is HR. So CAM is in charge of HR. Y'all will never forget that list. CAM is in charge of HR. Character, ability, maturity, home life, and reputation. Five points of a two-point sermon. I'm not cheating. We're gonna go super fast. I promise y'all beat 1122 to the, to, the, to the lunch table. I promise. Here we go. All right. First is character. First is character. Well, I don't see that phrase in there. Where are you getting that? Well, there's an umbrella phrase you'll see in there. It's called above reproach. And this phrase above reproach means that your leaders are without scandal. They're without, um, what's the phrase? Criticism. Criticism in their personal and public life. How in the world does a person reveal this? How do you see this in a person? Paul adds to this that you need to be, your elders need to be sober-minded and self-controlled. So when you take above reproach and then you add sober-minded and self-control, it builds into what character should look like. All right, the sober-minded and self-controlled person 
means that inside and outside, their lives are disciplined to glorify Christ above all things. There's internal and external discipline with them. Sober-minded means internally that your elders and your pastors, they aren't living in some sort of fantasy world in la-la land, um, similarly to how we see children at museums and they go to one thing and they just make an absolute mess and then they see another kid playing with something they gotta go take that thing from that kid and then they've left a mess over here and then inside of their lives, their reputation is one where there's just messes. There's fires everywhere that are never put out. Nothing really ever gets done. They don't live in a fantasy world nor do they live uh, in a place where they are domineering over people and manipulative and uh, scripture, I call it Bible thumping, where they, where they thump people with their Bibles, all right? Your, your leaders should be self-controlled in a way that they can take what God is impressing in their lives for the needs of the church and put it into action. Henry Ford famously said, you can't build a foundation on what you're going to do. You see, the sober-minded man can put an idea into action and trust the Lord with the results while building other people up along the way. That's what sober-minded means. So sober-minded is internal character, self-control is externally. This man is disciplined not only spiritually and emotionally, but physically. His life isn't controlled by, Paul says, shouldn't be a lover of money. Now, this doesn't mean that pastors can't be wealthy. It doesn't mean elders can't be wealthy. I know plenty of wealthy pastors and elders who aren't lovers of money. I know plenty of broke people that are lovers of money, all right? So it's not about the things, it's about where, what's your heart's motivation. Because if you love money more than people or Jesus, everybody's gonna be treated like a commodity to make more money. You will recognize that in your leaders. Stay far from them. Not only that, but they don't need to be a drunkard. This doesn't mean that pastors and elders and leaders can't have alcohol. Jesus turned water into wine. It was delicious wine. But they shouldn't be addicted to alcohol or any substance that helps them kind of just take the edge off. That's, that's, a, that's alarm bell language, right? Every, you can't see them at a function without a drink in their hand. Right? This is just things to be aware of. But being self-controlled not only applies to money and alcohol, drugs, et cetera, but it also applies to what they eat. Uh, I had a seminary professor, I debated whether or not to tell this illustration, but they call it pastor's rump. Um, and pastor's rump refers to guys who get into the church and they are so consumed, they don't have a work-life balance, and then all they do is sit all day and eat and sit at the computer and go from meeting to meeting where they're just eating and talking, and they don't have any work-life balance and exercise, and what happens over time, their rumps become fat and flat. And what will happen over time is that will uh, work its way into the ministry as well. Their health will start to suffer. So self-control means that your elders have discipline and with a work-life balance. They know when to work. They know when to rest. An elder who lacks self-control, they're going to overwork. 
They're going to overeat. They're not going to be present at home. If they are at home, they're sending emails, talking on the phone. They're at restaurants. You can't get them off the phone. They're always doing something, working seven days a week, and eventually they'll just become out of shape physically and mentally. Spiritually, they'll start to suffer. Their work suffers. Their family suffers. Their church suffers. I've been there. I've been in a very toxic church before. It's the third church I've served in, and I've been in painful churches to where I thought the church's health depended on me being everything for everybody, like I was the fourth member of the Trinity, right? I, and what happens over time is I wasn't caring for myself. My gut started to grow, and praise God, there was a loving member of the church who was a Green Beret and pulled me aside, and he said, Matt, I love you, but you're getting sloppy. He's like, you look tired and exhausted. You're not gonna be able to see your belt buckle for much longer because you're getting the gut. He was like, every day from one to three, I'll be at Gainesville Health and Fitness. I expect you to be there. And thank God he loved me enough to say that to me. My wife loves me enough to be like, babe, do I kind of look fat in this? And she's like, no, <laughs> you're good. You're right, your wife is gonna love you enough to like not tell you look terrible. Kind of like when your hair's falling out, but like, hey, is my hair thinning? No right? So you need people who love you. That's the point. Church, that's, you have to care for your pastors and elders. It's okay to have those conversations. We need to know that y'all are caring for us. We'll get to that in a minute. But you need to be careful and make sure that your elders are self-controlled and disciplined. So their character is first and foremost. Next is ability. We see hospitable and able to teach back to back. This is no mystery why these two phrases are back to back. You're not gonna learn from anyone who is not able to be hospitable to you. If someone is confrontational, if someone is always having a hill to die on, if someone always has an edge with them, do you really think you wanna learn what they have to say? Not at all. The phrase hospitable in the Greek, woodenly translated as lover of strangers, so your elders need to love people well. Uh, historically, these churches were meeting in homes and oftentimes people would just stop into people's homes and see what was going on and they needed to be a lover of outsiders. We should be called to the exact same thing, even more so in our culture because guess what's going on in our world right now? Gas prices, socioeconomic unrest, political unrest, things going on in our school systems. Our culture is a hot mess. This is the worst platform to get in a discussion about those things because guess what? This is a one-sided conversation. You need your pastors and elders who are hospitable because the best place to talk about cultural hot topics, to talk about the gospel, to talk about life isn't necessarily from a podium. It's in their homes. It's over a meal, it's over coffee, it's, it's in their homes where you can sit face to face and, and humanize the conversation. Besides hospitality though, your elders have got to be able to teach. Now, some elders you'll see, like Keith and I, we teach primarily on Sunday mornings and community groups and one-on-ones, but our other elders are pastors too. They teach primarily in one-on-one -on -one settings and in community groups, and regardless of the settings, though, your elders need to have the ability to know the Bible and how to apply it. 
Now, here's where hospitality and the ability to teach collide. You can know a lot of Bible and have terrible, terrible, terrible theology. Just because someone's been to seminary doesn't mean that they know how to apply the Bible to their people. Additionally, good pastors and elders, they know how to take the Bible and apply it to their people. I'm not going to preach a sermon or meet with y'all and teach y'all like we're in rural Eastern North Carolina, like y'all are a bunch of farmers. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna have agricultural uh, applications. I'm gonna have deer hunting applications. I'm gonna have pocket knife discussions. You just, there's wisdom in knowing how to apply the gospel to the people that God's called you to. And how in the world are you gonna be able to do that if you're not welcoming people in your home? If you're not going out to eat with people, people ask me, what, do I, what does a pastor do? I say 90% of my life is eating, right? But that's a good thing because that's where you're getting to know your people. You knowing, uh, pastors are knowing their elders, elders are knowing their community groups, you're caring for your community groups and so on and so forth. We've got to know how to apply good theology because there's bad theology and apply it to our people in a way that they can understand. Now, how does this practically look for y'all? If you're a member, visitor, if you're a member of another church, if you're experiencing or exploring Christianity, what does that look like? Pastors should not treat the pulpit like a seminary level classroom, all right? I'm not taking shots at anybody. This is a personal example. Uh, I started ministry in 2012, and while I was in seminary, I was a youth and family pastor of a church plant. They gave me all the preaching reps I wanted to, and guess what young seminarian who just learned Greek and Hebrew does? I had screens full of verb charts and words and Greek and Hebrew, and I was loving it, and I was so excited, and here's what this Greek word means in my own like Southern slang, and it didn't make any sense, and people left there like, man, that guy, he knows Greek and Hebrew. That's awesome. He sounds pretty smart. I don't have an idea what he's talking about. That might be some of the worst sermons, and I'd come home and be like, Abby, babe, how'd I do? She'd be like, well, huh? you all right? How's my hair? It's not thinning. Like it's, that, it's kind of that same thing. Like she loves you and she'll give you those little gentle proddings, right? So pastors shouldn't treat this place like a seminary classroom. George Whitfield is one of the most brilliant pastors and scholars America's ever seen. And he commonly said, he regularly said, preach the market language. Preach the language of your people. Don't flex on how much you know, but give the Bible to your people in a way that they can eat it. So it shouldn't be a seminary classroom, but also it shouldn't be a self-help lecture where the pastor takes one piece of scripture, closes the Bible, and then preaches a self-help, be a better you sermon, right? That's just creating uh, self-help junkies. That's not gospel biblical teaching. You see, pastors should be able to take the Bible and to give it to their people, whether it's Sunday morning in this formal worship setting, in homes and around coffee tables, whatever the case, where you leave wanting more of Jesus, where you leave saying, man, I didn't even realize that about the scriptures and how the gospel applies to me and there's hope and help for me in this situation. They shouldn't leave you thinking, man, that guy's read a bunch of books. He knows Greek and Hebrew and all this. No, Good pastors know, and elders know that they are but matchmakers for the bride and his groom. 
The wedding is about the husband and the bride, Jesus and his church. The best men just make sure that no problems happen. That's what good elders should be. We shouldn't be seeking fame and glory from Jesus, but putting the bride and the groom together. This takes experience, though. It takes failing. It, it, it takes preaching garbage sermons and misapplying the Bible and failing over and over. One of my favorite pastors says, your first hundred sermons are gonna be terrible. Never record them. And I can vouch for that. It takes experience. It takes seasoning. It takes the humility of, pe of exposing yourself and people speaking into your life and receiving it with humility. It takes the church to build up its pastors and to build up its uh, elders. This is a group effort. And this is why maturity in the faith is our third qualifier. All right, maturity in faith. In verse six, Paul says they must not be a recent convert. And this, let us, this lets us know that your pastors and elders need some life seasoning. They need ministry experience to serve as your elders. Experience is vital because rookie mistakes are real. Rookie pastors, rookie elders see every situation as a hill to die on. Everything is life and death. Everything has to be perfect. I have to be posh. I have to be this, that, that. I've got to be the fourth person of the Trinity so everything doesn't fall apart and I bring shame to Jesus. Teachers are, 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 are um, judged more severely. That's a neurotic, uh, walking on eggshells pastor they need experience and time to work that out of them. They need life experience. They need to just serve behind the scenes and have all that work through by the Holy Spirit. Maturity in faith dictates that your pastors and elders know when to take up the fight. They know what hills to die on. They know when to stand up and protect the church and they also know when to sit back and say, everything's going to be just fine. Let's pray for this. This is not something to lose our hair about. Good leaders know when to pick up the fight. They know when to let Jesus handle the problem. And what that means is maturity in the faith creates a level head in your pastors. Their lives aren't like this. When you meet with them, they're not highs and lows, highs and lows, but they're even keel. Nothing really rattles their cage. No full service gives them a big head. No small service makes them uh, drop into the pits of despair, but they're calm, cool, and collected. That's what to look for with maturity in the faith. And you might be wondering, well, where in the world does somebody get that kind of training? Well, they should already be doing that. When you look around the congregation and think about your leaders, they should be doing this. They should be here. They should be hospitable. They should be caring for people. They should already be doing a lot of the work, and that's why you recognize it. That's called the external call. Other people will see them doing that work and be like, man, he at least needs to go through training for this and see if he can be examined and called. Another great place they do this is through family leadership. This is our fourth qualifier. I promise y'all we're near the end, all right? Verse four and five teach that an elder must manage his household well. You see, you could tell a lot about a man by the way that his wife and his children are doing. You see, it's really easy to look at our family and kids for Sunday morning and be like, you better 
straighten up on Sunday. You better not be running. You better be. And then you walk in with a non-COVID mask, a figurative mask that everything's perfect. Life is great. And your kids start to like sneeze in public and you elbow them and you're just beating them into submission. You can fake that only for a short while. Eventually, people will start to see like, man, something's going on. Like his wife and his kids, like they are, are they okay? Do they need rescuing? Like, hey, how's marriage? How's ministry? <laughs> it's, it's really great. I really love it. Uh, and like, they just feel like kind of their nose is bleeding all the time because they're just dealing with so much stress. You want to see men that care and steward their wives and their families well, that their children are honoring of their parents, that they, you, have you ever met those couples like you sit around the table and you can tell they're just ready to stab each other with a fork when you're not like looking, you know, those kind, like they just kind of pat them a little too hard. I've, I've seen plenty of them. All right, you could tell when things are rocky. You want to see in your, in your pastors that they love their, their families well. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that their kids are gonna be perfect and saints, but it means that they love them and they lead with grace and they step up and they make hard decisions and good decisions and they're okay to lead. All right, I could say a ton about this, but this is our final point. If you take all of this acronym, CAM and HR, if you take all that together, boil it up and you set this person or people out, what's gonna happen is their reputation will precede them and follow them. Their reputation will be known. And this is our last one. We see reputation in verse seven. He must be thought of well by outsiders. This is important because your pastors and elders are the front line viewership. They are your audio visual mouthpieces to the world. When we're out in public, when we're doing things and people find out you're a pastor, it's going to send really weird messages uh, if they're sloppy, if they're always at the beach bars, uh, if they're hanging out with like a really odd crowd, like why are you hanging out with all those teenage women? Like what's happening? Like this is kind of odd. Uh, when they have servants bringing them water, and that's why I said, uh, I, I literally forgot my water, that's abnormal for me. Uh, but you can, you can start to notice, and, and this is happening all across America. Stories like this are coming out where pastors are living in ivory towers away from their people and people become the servants versus they serving other people. And then their reputation will precede them. If they're not managing their home well, if they're not uh, as an employee or an employer loving their businesses and their people and their coworkers well, People will recognize this and they're claiming not only the name of Christ, but the name of this church and non-believers will see that. And this is why this text is important, not just for church members, those in churches or attenders, but for non-Christians. Think about, think about one of the primary things that people say they have a problem with the church about. What's one of the primary frustrations people have? is that the church is full of hypocrites, right? They're partially true. There's a seed of truth in that. Think about this. I am here proclaiming a gospel that's calling me to live a life of holiness and I fail at that regularly. That's partial hypocrisy. How do we war against full-blown hypocrisy? Repentance, confession, confession, 
making sure that we don't try to hide sins and hide our weaknesses. If the church or somebody, other elders, people notice something, our wives, children see sin in us, we're quick to repent. We model repentance and and living a, a life that's dependent upon the grace of Jesus. Jesus is calling sinful men to lead sinful people and sinful men and sinful people will do what? Sin. Don't be alarmed or don't be concerned if your elders fail to live up to the standard. Here's when you should be alarmed. Be alarmed when they're not repenting. Be alarmed when they live in isolation. Be alarmed when they're rarely at church. Be alarmed when they live in isolation. Be alarmed if you see things and mention things that they become defensive and guarded and, uh, and, and stiff-arming and, and pushing of others away. Be concerned, be alarmed at that point. But positively, the way to care for your pastors and elders is to pray for them. You might feel like praying is the last thing you can do for your pastor. That's the first thing the church should be doing for their leaders. Because if y'all aren't praying for them, who else is? There's a spiritual warfare that's taking place and there's plenty of people praying for our demise. There's people actively praying for churches like ours to end. The devil, it says, and two times, but look at um, verse seven. So that he might not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. There's a spiritual war taking place. And this is our church. We are together. You need to pray for those who you vote to, to stand for you and to teach you and to be with you. Pray for their families. A lot of times spiritual warfare doesn't happen to the men, it happens to their families. So pray for their families. It's one thing for me to get sick, to break an arm, to have a concussion, because I'll just come up here and just talk through it, act like nothing's wrong. But if my wife is sick and my kids are sick, I'm going to be a stressed out mess. I'm going to lose sleep. I'm going to be concerned for them. So pray for the pastor's wives and family. Ask them how they're doing. Please, I'm encouraging y'all to do this. We've got this work together that we have got to accomplish for the gospel to go forward and to see lives changed in this world renew. I'll close with this. This is a text that tells you whether you're a member, non-believer, investigating Christianity, that God loves you. How? If you look at this list, this is a list that only one man, the God-man, has filled perfectly from start to finish with every beat of his heart until his last breath, until his resurrection. Jesus fulfilled this perfectly. This is the shepherd who guards your souls. This is the man in whom you put your full trust in. This is the man who lived and died and rose again for you, who did all these things perfectly and then on the cross became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. This text reminds you of how perfect and beautiful and loving and how selfless 
our Savior was. A good elder recognizes that. Christians recognize that. Let this all uh, encourage us to turn back to Jesus. And a quick word of encouragement for our elders, including myself. This is a call to continue to trust in Jesus and for future elders and leaders because we have failed before and we will fail again. What sets us apart is that we don't hide from our failures, that we're vulnerable with our strengths and weaknesses. We recognize those areas of needs of improvement and we let others know about it. Trust the chief shepherd of our souls. Church, trust the chief shepherds of our souls and by grace, through faith, for all of us, there's no condemnation. There is love and mercy, forgiveness and grace. And I promise, I can say this with 100% assurity, if all of us will trust the health and well-being of this church to Jesus, I promise we'll be just fine. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your church. The gates of hell will not uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. No man is going to destroy this church from the inside or outside, but you reign supreme. You have purchased this church, the people in it, by your blood. You have resurrected. You live to constantly intercede for your people and to protect us. And I pray, Father, that you would protect us from Satan who seeks to uh, hurt the leadership of this church, uh, to hurt the elders, to hurt the members of this church, protect us from that evil, but also, Lord, encourage us for the work you're calling us to. As we continue to love outsiders and live lives that bring glory to your name, help us to be regular repenters. Help us to be uh, beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. Help us to look uh, and act and smell more like you, Jesus. We're dependent upon you for this. In your name we pray, amen.